Uh, my name is Ryan Beaver. I am the, uh, the Murrieta teaching pastor, and I am excited to be here. I've been here all day today, so it's been a, it's been a kind of a, a long time since I've been here for an entire Sunday. Uh, five messages is a lot of messages in the morning. It's a uh, my voice is a little sore. I'm starting to wonder if I've already said things a bunch of different times. It's kind of one of those things where I'm like, Scott, impressive. I can't believe you do that every week. So um, I am, uh, with that being said, there's, there's a message that I get to share with you. Um, we were sitting in a pastor's meeting, uh, and we were talking about the series, and, and this, um, this idea came up for, for this week's message, and I was like, oh my gosh, I have a message I love to share on that. I've shared it before. And, um, and basically, Scott was like, you should share that in Temecula. And I'm like, man, I can't wait. I'm excited. It gets me a chance to see you guys, and it gets me a chance to share something with you that um, it's been encouraging and uplifting for me in my walk with God, and I hope it will be uh, uplifting to you and maybe um, you know, just somewhat encouraging. Um, with that being said, uh, how many of you guys have ever gotten lost in the YouTube world where you, you kind of log onto YouTube, you search a video, and like three hours later, you're like, where am I? How did I get here? And what is this cat doing on my screen? You know what I'm talking about? Like you, you start off like looking at Dude Perfect and before long, it's just really, really weird stuff that you found your way migrating to thanks to the little suggestion uh, bar on your side of your, your computer screen there. Um, yeah, these guys are like, I've been there. Yeah, right. So, so you guys are like, mom and dad, it's not just me. The pastor does it too. It's totally cool. Um, I, again, I've been there. I've done that. And, and one of the times that it happened recently, I was, I was just kind of just, again, chasing videos around YouTube and like, oh, that's interesting or that's not. Go to the next one. And um, basically, uh, there was one headline on the side that caught my eye. It was a Christian video and it said, uh, it said this little, little headline phrase. And, and I'm going to show you what it said with a blank in place of the first word. So it said, it said blank, it, they actually had the word there, it said blank, the sin God hates most. It's, it's an interesting phrase, right? Like for us that, you know, that have been to church for a while, there's some ideas, that there's some words that we may want to put in there. You may be thinking, you know, I bet the word is like blasphemy, the sin God hates the most. Or maybe you're thinking, you know, uh, idolatry, the sin God hates the most. Or, um, you know, I, I was thinking when I, you know, when I was kind of looking at this, I'm thinking I would have guessed pride. I would have thought pride, the sin God hates the most. Uh, uh, C.S. Lewis says, um, says, says that pride is the root of all the other sin. What if, if I could kind of fill that blank in with like a personal favorite, it would be um, people that, that are in the right-hand lane and choose not to turn right and just stop and block the way for everyone else. That is the sin that God hates the most. Does anyone else hate that as much as I do? It absolutely drives me way out of like balance angry. I'm like in there, I'm like, they're costing me 30 seconds of my life. And I'm telling you, just very tempting to just, you know, give them a little love tap from behind. But then, you know, that just wouldn't be good. Um, so that's not what it is. <clears throat> None of the other ones I said are what it is. Uh, here is the word that was in that uh, title. It said doubt, the sin God hates most. And so again, the, the reason this thing caught my eye is because as soon as I thought that I started, as soon as I saw that, I started thinking, um, that doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound uh, like something I necessarily agree with. It doesn't sound like something that I've seen to be true from, from what I know of uh, just kind of you know, studying the Bible and, and hearing other people and, and what they teach about the Bible. Um, there's a few reasons that I don't agree with that statement. Uh, the first reason is this, is that I personally have struggled with doubt throughout my Christian walk uh, at times. And, um, and, and I know that it's not something that's unique to me. I've seen a lot of people that struggle with doubt. And I've seen a lot of churches that make doubt seem like it's some really, really big bad thing and it's frowned upon and, and people look down upon you and they gasp when they tell you, when you tell them maybe I'm questioning something and they're like, oh, stay away from me. You struggle with doubt. This is, a, this is a circle of friends that has tremendous faith and we can't be around you and it's like this awkward thing. Uh, but again, to me, 
what I know of from my, my own life and from conversations I've had with friends, from counseling appointments I've had, um, doubt is very, very common to one degree or another. And so, so again, that's one reason, but probably the more important reason for me that, um, that I don't believe that doubt is something that God hates so much is that I have seen God use doubt in my life time and time again to actually strengthen my faith. I've seen God take my, my periods of doubt or things that I've, I've questioned and as I've, I've kind of handled them in a way that I believe is, is uh, kind of the whole point of this message, a way that God, um, where I, I bring them to God, I've seen how God has used them to help me get deeper and richer in my faith than I was before I had those doubts. So I would say um, doubt, if it's handled correctly, isn't, isn't a, a sin that God hates. I would say doubt, if it's handled correctly, can be something that God uses to do tremendous things in your relationship with him. And so I want to show you a, a story. If you guys have your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 7. Uh, I'm going to share a story about a guy named John the Baptist. This is, again, it's a story I love. It's a story I've taught in the past. Um, it's a story that when I first read it, uh, I, I just kept pausing and thinking, this doesn't seem right. And this doesn't seem right. What's going on here? And it was one of, those, one of the first times when I was casually reading the Bible where I kind of was, was forced to stop and, and ask like the tough questions of like, what exactly is going on here? So let's look at verse 18 and chapter 7. Uh, this is a story about John the Baptist. It says this. The disciples of John the Baptist told John about everything Jesus was doing. So John called out for two of his disciples, and he sent them to the Lord to ask him, are you the Messiah we've been expecting, or should we keep looking for someone else? Now, I don't know if you noticed in the last slide, but the word so was capitalized and it was bold, because when I was reading this passage, um, and I kind of looked at this one you know, opening section, that word so just jumped out to me as like the key word in that first section. And the reason I thought it was such an important word is because when you read this, you realize it's kind of a cause and an effect. It's like the idea that this happened, so this happened. And so the, the, the cause was that John the Baptist's disciples came to him and shared with him news of things that Jesus was doing. And the effect, the, re, the result of that was that John the Baptist sent two of his disciples with a question for Jesus, which was this, are you the Messiah or should we wait for someone else? And so, the, so that's the cause and effect. Um, I don't know if you guys, I was trying to think of a way to kind of think of a similar situation, and I just kind of went down a weird road in my head. Any of you ladies ever do like the uh, wedding dress shopping thing with like the bridal party and all that stuff? Does that, is that a thing you guys do? I, th I feel like that's a thing I've heard that ladies do, but a lot of times ladies are going to be like, I don't know what you're talking about. But I've heard stories about women that go and they shop for wedding dresses and it's this wonderful day where they're all smiling and happy and they're all like, you look so beautiful in that dress, it's wonderful. And, and the bride's all happy and, and the, the, the bridesmaids are saying, you look gorgeous and they're all trying on their bridesmaids dresses, which I think is like 50-50, girls either hate them or love them usually, is that about right? Anyway, so, um, so the, imagine you're at a, one of those things and the, let's say the bride's name is Susan or something and, uh, and some lady walks in and says, uh, are you Susan? She says, yes, I am. She's like, are you engaged to, uh, you know, Peter? Well, yes, I am engaged to Peter. Um, she said, all right, well, I need to tell you something about Peter. And so they leave the room, and the bridesmaids look at each other like, I don't really know what's going on. And then two minutes later, they come back in, and, and Susan's lost her glow. You know, she doesn't have that, like, ooh, you know, like happy face glow that she had before. Now she's stoic and kind of just, uh, just kind of like, all right, a little angry. And, and the, the first words that come out of her mouth is, all right, let's go. The wedding is off. Now, if, if that were to happen, you'd think, what would you be thinking? You'd be thinking, what on earth just happened right now, right? You'd, you'd be thinking how awkward it is and how awkward you feel, but you'd very quickly be wondering, what did she say to Susan to change everything? 
Like, what is it that she said that could, that could be so significant to cause what it caused? So this story that we're reading, this opening section is like that. It's like, what on earth did they say to, G, to, to, to John the Baptist that caused him to be like, um, is he even the Messiah? And so, so here's, here's the thing, is if, if, you would have, if, if you would have told me that John the Baptist's disciples came to Jesus, oh, excuse me, John the Baptist's disciples came to John and said, hey, you won't believe what Jesus is doing. I'm hearing story after story about him doing stuff and it's just weird. Like the other day some cripple guy was walking down the street and Jesus just stuck his foot out and tripped him and then just laughed and walked away. You're like, is that in the Bible? No, it's not in the Bible, just to be clear. Or if you'd have been like, oh, you know, Jesus Jesus is, is going into the homes of widows when they go off to the market to get whatever food they can get. He's going into their homes and he's robbing them blind. He's turning their picture frames upside down just to mess with them and then he's leaving and just saying, huh, funny. Now, now, if you were to hear things like that, you'd be like, okay, I understand if they're telling John the Baptist these things, it makes sense that why he would ask that question. But in this story, I don't think there's any way on earth that that's what they were telling John the Baptist. Right before this, uh, at the start of chapter seven, we read a story about how Jesus heals a Roman officer's uh, servant who's sick. Basically, he's, he's close to death, and the Roman officer sends someone to Jesus and says, can you please uh, intervene here? Can you please heal my servant? And Jesus does. He miraculously heals him. And then right after that, right before the story that we're reading already, there's a story about Jesus walking into this town, and there's a funeral procession coming out, and Jesus stops by the coffin of this young boy, and he says, rise, and the boy does He's dead and he comes back to life. So Jesus is healing people. Jesus is raising people from the dead. And this is just two stories, but I can guarantee you in verse 18 when it says the disciples of John the Baptist told John about everything Jesus was doing, it was things like this. And so you read this and you're like, why on earth would would he ask the question that he asked? It's a very strange question. What is it about Jesus doing miracles that would cause John the Baptist to be like, um... Are you sure? I mean, are you really the Messiah? Like that, that's not something that should have prompted that question. It's a very strange question for that reason and it's a very strange question for another reason. And that reason is, is, the, is the person who's actually asking the question. It's strange that John the Baptist would ask this because out of all the people on the face of the planet other than Jesus, John the Baptist should know best who Jesus is. John the Baptist should be very, very clear as to who it is that Jesus is, and specifically the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. In Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, this is the start of Mark's gospel, the start of Mark telling the story of Jesus' life. This is what Mark has to say. He says, this is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. He says, it began just as the prophet Isaiah had written. So he's saying, the story of Jesus begins just like it was foretold hundreds of years ago by Isaiah. And so Isaiah writes in chapter 40, and he says this about a messenger who's going to go before the Messiah and kind of prepare the way. And it says this, it says, look, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare your way. He is a voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord's coming, clear the road for him. And it says at the end there, it says that this messenger was John the Baptist. So this was his his call from God. His job was to be the forerunner, the one that went before Jesus and said, the Messiah is coming and he's going to be amazing. That is what God called John the Baptist to do. And and, and that's just one small verse. There's a verse in Luke that tells about when John the Baptist was in his mom's womb. 
In, it, when it's in his mom's belly, that it says that, that John the Baptist is in his mom's belly and that Mary comes in pregnant with Jesus and Mary says something and John the Baptist leaps in his mom's womb because Jesus came in the room. And then you, you fast forward you know, several years, uh, like 30 years, and John the Baptist is, is, has this thriving ministry where he goes out in the wilderness and he preaches about people repenting and he baptizes people in repentance. And, and it's this, this thriving ministry with thousands of people. And one day he's doing his thing and on the side of the, the, the Jordan River, Jesus appears. And he stops what he's doing and he says, behold, the Lamb of God, the one who takes away the sins of the world. Does it sound like he's like, Look, that might maybe possibly potentially be the Messiah. Now he's saying like, behold, the Lamb of God, the one who takes away the sins of the world. And after that, him and Jesus begin talking back and forth. Uh, Jesus is saying, you should baptize me. And John the Baptist is like, no, no, man, you should baptize me. I'm unworthy. And Jesus says, listen, this is the way it needs to be, so let's just make this happen. And so John the Baptist does get ready to baptize Jesus. And as he's doing it, it says that a dove descends from heaven and lands on Jesus. I mean, that's a pretty cool thing. And then right after that, it says that a voice from heaven, it speaks out and it says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. John the Baptist had front row seats for all of this. So when I tell you it's strange that he would ask, is Jesus the Messiah? It's really, really strange. If anyone should know for sure that Jesus is the Messiah, it's John the Baptist because of what he's seen, because of what his call was. But again, he has a moment where he cries out and says, go ask, go ask him, is he the Messiah? So let's read on and see what it says in verse 20 through 22. So John's two disciples found Jesus and they said to him, John the Baptist sent us to ask, are you the Messiah that we've been expecting or should we keep looking for someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many people of their diseases, illnesses, and evil spirits, and he restored sight to many who were blind. Then he told John's disciples, go back to John and tell him what you've seen and heard. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. So, so they go and they do what John told them to do. They ask Jesus, Jesus, are you the Messiah or should we wait for someone else? And, and when Jesus responds to him, at any point in that response, did you hear Jesus say, uh, yes, I am, let him know I am? I didn't hear any, there, nowhere does he say, yes, the word yes, I am. He does one of those like weird Jesus things where they ask him a direct question, he doesn't give them a direct response, he actually goes over here and starts healing people. He's like, blind lady, there, you can see. Deaf guy, there, you can see. Crippled guy, stand up and walk. Pigeon-toed guy, you're welcome. And he just starts going around the room healing people. And it's just, it's just Jesus doing cool Jesus things, and he says to them, to, to the disciples, okay, did you see that? Go back and tell John what you saw and what you heard. So essentially, even though he didn't say yes, he clearly gave what I like to call a non-response response. Does that make sense? If you're married, that makes total sense. A non-response response. You guys know what I'm talking about? One of, I had one the other night where my wife, I'm like, oh, so, so the answer, so you're saying no. And she's like, I didn't say no. I'm like, yes, you did say no. It was very, very, very clear. I heard it loud and clear. You didn't use words, but your face said it. And the other words you said around it, clearly, I'm good. No, no, it is. Okay, cool. Non-response response. That's what Jesus did in this situation. He didn't say, yes, I'm the Messiah, but he clearly said, yes, I'm the Messiah. 
And I believe with all my heart that John the Baptist would have received that message as a, as a confirmation of yes, he is the Messiah, do not wait for someone else. So I wanna I want see where it goes from here. So we're gonna pick up at verse 22, the one we just closed with, so that it kind of flows into verse 23, because verse 23 is another one of those interesting verses in this story. So again, Jesus, after he heals the people, he tells John's disciples, go back to John and tell him what you've seen and heard. Tell him that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are, pray, are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. And tell him God blesses those who do not turn away because of me, or God blesses those who do not fall away on account of me. So, so when you see this, um, you have what I would like to say is, is, is it's basically the same thing John the Baptist starts this story with, something that doesn't make much sense, but in, in the opposite direction. So the story starts with John hearing about Jesus' miracles and saying, go find out if he is in fact the Messiah. And now we have Jesus doing miracles and telling them to tell John and saying, hey, I hope that doesn't cause you to lose faith in me. Which again, it, it doesn't sound right. It sounds weird. It sounds like it doesn't fit. But again, I think it's really important because the two of them together will, will help us reveal, I think the answer, the reasoning for why John asked what he asked and the reason for why Jesus said what he said, I think it's the same reason. I think that Jesus is aware of what John was, was going through and I think John, because of what he was going through, asked what he asked. So to understand it, we need to understand the context. So my question is this, um, John the Baptist, his disciples came to him and told him what Jesus was doing. Why, why couldn't John the Baptist go and see for himself what Jesus was doing? Uh, not only that, but John the Baptist tells his disciples, you go and ask Jesus, are you the Messiah or should we wait for someone else? Is that because John's lazy? Is that because John didn't want to be the one who asked the embarrassing question? No, if you've, if you've read the story, you know that at, at this time, John the Baptist is in prison. He's in a, he's in a little cell, a little concrete cell, and, and more specifically, he's, he's basically on death row. He's on death row because he confronted Herod about some incredibly wicked acts that Herod was doing, and Herod didn't like it, and, and Herod's soon-to-be wife didn't like it, and they locked him up in prison, and they're about to do some things to him that will end his life. And so John the Baptist is not in a good situation for anyone, but specifically for a guy like John the Baptist, he's in the worst possible place he could be. John the Baptist is what you would call an outdoorsy type. You know what I'm talking about? You guys have any friends that are like way too into camping? Anyone in here way too into camping? Yeah, lots of granola everywhere. Like John the Baptist, grew, he just spent his entire life out in the wilderness. He wore camel's hair for clothing. He ate locusts and honey for his average meal. If John the Baptist was around today, I guarantee you he would drive a Subaru. I just guarantee it. That's the kind of guy John the Baptist was. And so he's, he's, he's an outdoorsy kind of guy. He likes to kind of, the smell of the fresh air, sleeping under the stars, and he's in a little concrete block awaiting death. It's not a good situation for John the Baptist. Those are his circumstances, and, and so here's the deal. On one hand, you need, to, you need to know where John is. You need to know what he's going through. But on the other hand, there's something important to understand about John, and that is how he, what he expected out of the Messiah. Because if you look at what he expected out of the Messiah and you, and you hold it next to what he was going through, you'll see what prompted the question. So let's look at Luke chapter three. Luke chapter three, verse 15 through 17, you're gonna see John the Baptist basically revealed what he expects out of the Messiah. So in verse 15, this is early in his ministry. Jesus has not been baptized yet. He's still out there preaching repentance. He's still the big show. And it says this, everyone was expecting the Messiah to come soon. And they were eager to know whether John might actually be the Messiah. 
So John answers their questions by saying, I baptize you with water, but someone is coming soon who is greater than I am, so much greater that I'm not even worthy to be his slave and untie the straps of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So he's saying, I'm not the Messiah. He's coming and he's going to be amazing. And then he goes on, and this is the key line here at the end. He says this, he is ready to separate the chaff from the wheat with his winnowing fork, and then he will clean up the threshing area, gathering the wheat into his barn, but burning the chaff with never-ending fire. So, so this, is, this is really, really important, because if you want to know why John asked that confusing question at the start, it's because of this. If you want to know why Jesus felt the need to, when he did those miracles and said, tell John about it, but then he said, I hope that doesn't make you lose your faith, this is why. Because John the Baptist had a very clear expectation for the, for the Messiah, and it was this, that, that when he showed up, he was going to sort this whole mess out, and he was going to find the godly, God-fearing, righteous people, the wheat in this analogy, and he was going to gather them together and store them in the barn, and he was going to find the wicked, evil, um, you know, adulterous people, the people that, that rebelled against God and disobeyed God, uh, the pagan, you know, uh, the idol-worshiping folk, he was going to gather them, and they were going to have some really bad news to deal with. And when the Messiah gets here, that's what we can look forward to. Finally, the scales will be set correctly, and, and it's going to be great. And so now you, you see where he's at, and you realize that each night he can hear the music from Herod's parties playing off in the distance. And he's thinking, um, why is the wheat in the prison cell while the chaff's out there doing all sorts of wicked stuff and having a wonderful time doing it? He sees a very, very big disconnect between his circumstances and his understanding, or more specifically, his expectations for the Messiah. And because of this disconnect, he's left with what I would call a crisis of faith. What I expect out of the Messiah certainly isn't matching up with what I'm experiencing, and so now I'm left to wonder, is he in fact the Messiah? Because it just doesn't add up. And, and that's something that, that I, I believe that is the root of his problem, and that is a, that is a problem that I have seen, um, I've seen glimpses of it in my life. I've had, I've had deep conversations with people where I have seen that exact same thing play out in different ways. They have a certain expectation for who Jesus is going to be and how Jesus is going to impact their life, and then they look at their life and they're saying, I'm not seeing it. If Jesus is really Jesus, then why is my marriage struggling? Maybe he's not, maybe he's not who he claims to be. If Jesus is really Jesus, then, then why are my kids uh, going through what they're going through uh, you know, with their health? You know, then maybe he's, he's not really Jesus. And this is something that, that people wrestle with, and it's a, it's a common problem, but you look at John the Baptist, and, and it really comes from just a misunderstanding of who Jesus is supposed to be and that, that, that spurs this thing within him. And so you look at, throughout the Bible, and you see stories like Job. Job and his friends spend 20-something chapters wrestling because their misunderstanding of who they expect God to be like and what they're seeing their circumstances to be. The book of Habakkuk is another book where you see that same disconnect, there's a psalm, Psalm 73, about a guy named Asaph, the same disconnect. This is a common, common thing that leads to confusion, frustration, and oftentimes doubt to the point of what you're seeing in John the Baptist, which is, is Jesus even the Son of God? Is Jesus even the Messiah? So that's why John the Baptist has his question. That's why Jesus said what he said at the end, because unfortunately, that's what he was dealing with. Now, I want to I look at the last section of this passage um, because Jesus is going to share some thoughts on John the Baptist. And before we get there, if you could hold off on putting that verse up, um, I'll just say this. If I was Jesus, 
And the guy who was ordained from before birth to be my forerunner, to be my, my messenger, to be the guy who proclaims my coming, if I'm Jesus and I'm in front of a group of people and two guys walk up on his behalf and say, hey, uh, John, the forerunner, the messenger, he's just wondering, are you the Messiah or should we like wait for somebody else? I would turn at them and I'd say, you've got to be kidding me. You're killing the drill here. You are really making this whole thing look bad. And I'd be like, listen, forget, I'm sorry. Apparently John's just one of those weak-willed guys. You know, I don't know what to do with that. Just ignore that. Of course I'm Jesus. Here's some cool Messiah tricks. That's the stuff I'd be tempted to do if I was Jesus. But I want you to look at what Jesus does here because it's really important to see how Jesus responds to John's doubt. Let's look at verse 24. After John's disciples left, Jesus began talking about him to the crowds. What kind of man did you go out into the wilderness to see, Jesus asks. Was he a weak reed swayed by every breath of wind? Or were you expecting to see a man dressed in expensive clothes? No, he says, people who wear beautiful clothes and live in luxury, they're found in palaces, not living on the hillsides, not wearing camels or whatever, camels uh, fur for clothing. He goes on and he says, were you looking for a prophet? Yes. And John the Baptist is more than a prophet. John is the man to whom the scriptures refer to when they say, look, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way before you. And he closes with this. He says, I tell you of all who have ever lived, none is greater than John the Baptist. Again, that is so far from the way I would have responded. But here's Jesus dealing with with a situation where where a guy who of all people should have known, he is struggling with some pretty serious, pretty intense doubt, and and Jesus has nothing but grace and compassion for him. And that's incredibly important that we hear that because we we make it sound like, you know, here's this, this doubt and God hates it so much, but realistically, here's a great example of someone wrestling and struggling with doubt and Jesus has nothing but grace with him. And I believe, I believe Jesus, the whole, the whole thing about not answering but healing these people was part of this, this, this journey that he needed to take John on. And here's what I think Jesus was ultimately trying to accomplish with what he did there. He didn't say, yes, I'm the Messiah. He, he gave him some tough truth to wrestle with. And what he did is he said, listen, I want you to watch this. You see the blind lady over there? Boom, she can see. Tell John how I came through for her. You see the deaf guy over there? He hasn't heard a sound since the day he was born. Tonight, he's going to be listening to some music and probably crying as he does. Boom, he can hear. Tell John how I came through for the deaf guy. And tell him how I came through the crippled guy, came through for the pigeon-toed guy. Tell him how I came through for all of them. Just tell him. And tell him, man, I hope that doesn't cause you to fall away. Why would that cause him to fall away? What's the kind of implicit understanding there? Basically, it's this. Um... I'm not gonna be coming through for you the way you hope I will. You're right where I want you to be. My plan is for you to be there. And if, if you can be okay with that, blessed are you. And, and so that's the, that's the tough thing he needs to understand is that Jesus is not some cosmic karma God with just a white beard that just says, listen, I'm gonna reward the good and punish the bad. And since I'm good, it's gonna be good. And since they're bad, it's gonna be bad. That's not how I work, John, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry, but it's just not the case. And I look at this story and I see Jesus lovingly and graciously trying to help him to understand that. I don't see him frustrated that the doubt exists. I see him trying to lovingly walk him to a powerful truth. He praises John as a man of of God, a, a, a strong man, not a weak reed blown by the wind, but someone who's, again, a great prophet amongst those born of men. There are none greater than John. 
It's almost as if he's telling the audience, listen, you think, I mean, you think this is bad, but I'm telling you, this is a great man. And yes, even he struggles with doubt. And so when I read this story, I'm so encouraged by how Jesus responds. Because Jesus responds with grace and compassion. And I feel like it's such a great way of just understanding that God is okay with doubt. Not doubt that we hide. And here's the problem. Here's the problem I see in myself in the past. Well, not a ton of myself, but I've seen it a ton in people that I've come across. And I'll tell you why later. I, I, I haven't struggled with it a ton myself. But I've seen too many people that for one reason or another, one reason is this. Like I'm afraid if I express conf- like doubt or questions that the people in the church are going to judge me for being, you know, like one of little faith. And there's this attitude of like how, you know, we talked about it earlier, but there, that is a genuine issue within the church. People will have to have their act all together to the point where, of course, I never doubt anything about the Bible or about any. I mean, I am so secure in my faith. There is a sad, sad reality that people have to hide their doubts back in the dark recesses of their mind, lest they be found out by the people in church. That's one tragic thing, but, but another one that's probably just as tragic is there's a lot of people that, that feel the same way when it comes to God seeing their struggles and questions and doubts. I, it's almost as if we've created this God who's basically like this cosmic Wizard of Oz. You know, at the end of Wizard of Oz, when here's this you know, big, flashy, mighty, powerful Wizard of Oz, and at the end, he's exposed as some fraud behind a, behind a curtain. And he has this big like, who dares question the mighty Oz or the great and powerful Oz? And it's like, who dares question me? Please don't question me because if you do, you'll expose me. And when Toto pulls the curtain back, there he is. And I think there's Christians that are worried like, man, I I don't want to go to God and and, and ask the questions as if like, if I dig too deep, I might find something I don't like. or, Or if I dig too deep, God might really be angry at me for doing so. When really, I am telling you from my own personal experience and from what I see in scripture, I believe God is a God who says, here's a shovel, get to digging because the more you search for truth, the more you'll find yourself finding me. I mean, I I believe that with all my heart, God is not a God who's afraid of you discovering the truth because I believe if you find that truth, you'll find him. And so again, it's this beautiful story that points to Jesus saying, it's okay to doubt. And not only that, but it's a beautiful story about a guy, John the Baptist, who's, who's actually willing to be bold enough and brave enough to express his doubts. I mean, if you read this story and you don't, if you can't put yourself in his shoes, can you imagine how difficult it would be for him of all people to have to give that message to two of his disciples and say, go ask him. I mean, I would have hesitated to the extreme about whether or not I could, could I really bring up, can I really muster up the guts to send two of my disciples to ask this question? I mean, if I struggled with it, I'd be like, hopefully I'll get out of here soon and hopefully I can like whisper it in Jesus' ear when no one hears because the last thing I want to do is be the guy who's seen what I've seen and still struggle with doubt. But again, he doesn't let his pride or his sense of shame keep him from doing something that ultimately is going to help him grow in his faith. I want to start to wrap up and I want to do so by by looking at a few quotes that I, I found that I love. These are all incredibly godly men that that have some very, very wise words when it comes to uh, to doubt. C.S. Lewis says this. He says, the theological liberals tend to be too soft on doubt. They love notions of ambiguity and uncertainty. So there's people within the church that are kind of really embracing this kind of like, there is no absolute truth idea that, hey, your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth, and so, hey, you know, we can all just kind of believe what we want, and if you have doubts, that's fine. There really is no truth to really rest on anyway. And he's saying, that's not good. But he says the other side, he goes, on the other end of the spectrum, he says the theological conservative tends to be too hard on doubt. 
They demonize the dire consequences of unresolved doubt and verging on a spiritual perfectionism that leaves doubters in such a state of guilt or disrepair that they dare not acknowledge their doubts to others or even themselves. And so they hide them and they bury them and push them down. And and eventually they just eat at them and eat at them and eat at them until it's too much to bear. Until their college professor says, why do you believe what you believe? And they're like, I don't even know. I've never even asked a question. And now now my glass house is shattering. Here's some other ones that I love. This guy's name is Billy Graham. You guys heard of Billy Graham? I don't know who he is, but he seems pretty wise. He said this. He says, doubts are a normal part of life. We doubt things on earth, so it's easy to doubt the things of God. I mean, obviously, Billy Graham is, <laughs> I got it right that time. He's, pretty, he's a pretty amazing Christian man, and he's saying doubts are normal. William Lane Craig, who's a, who's a great apologist, a great Christian apologist, he's studied and studied and studied, and he's wrestled with some of the difficult questions. He says this, any Christian who is intellectually engaged and reflecting about his faith will inevitably face the problem of doubt. If you dig, you're gonna, if you, if you really invest and dig into this faith, you're gonna find things that you'll have questions about. He's saying it's just a natural, understandable thing. And what I told you at the start, I'm telling you, I believe to be true with, my, with all my being, that when you dig and when you, when you are spurred to these questions, if you explore them, if you wrestle with them, you will be better off for it, as opposed to suppressing them because, God forbid, someone knows that you have doubts. R.C. Sproul is the last one I want to read. I, I, I like this one. He says this, doubt can appear as a servant of truth. Authentic doubt has the power to sort out and clarify the difference between the certain and the uncertain. If doubt is, is handled correctly, it can actually lead you to truth that will, that will revolutionize your walk with God. It'll solidify the ground you stand on. When I was 18 or 19 years old, I had that moment in my walk where I thought to myself, okay, I'm a Christian because I was born in a Christian household. My dad used to be a pastor. I went to church pretty much every Sunday. I've been to youth group pretty much every Wednesday. I was raised and, uh, and, and basically brought up to be a Christian. And so I remember walking into the kitchen one day and saying to my dad, Dad, I have a question and I don't want you to get mad. I said, I, I need to know this. Why am I, I know why I'm a Christian because you raised me that way. And I know the people down the street, the, 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 the Buddhist family or the you know, Hindu family, whatever, I know that they, the, their kid is, is Hindu or Buddhist, I can't even remember what they were, because they were, he was raised that way. I was raised to be this, he was raised to be this, this is why I'm this and this is why he's that. Here's my question, why am I right and he wrong? It's a good question, right? And my dad said, because I said so, you big dummy. Just kidding. My dad actually said, leave this house at once, no one questions the Lord in this household, not really. This is what he said, he goes, you know what, that's a good question, you should look into that. I'm like, but how, Father, the interwebs doesn't exist yet, right? It had that little scratch, thing, and I wasn't about to go near that, right? But he gave me books, he said, read these books. William Lane Craig wrote one of them. He said, read these books, and he said, he said there's a group at church that, that digs through these questions, you should go and you should do it, and then let's talk. Isn't that crazy? I brought doubts to my dad, and my dad's like, all right, go wrestle with him. And I love that. And, and, and so again, I, I bring this up because to me, well, there, I have this weird thing with my family. It, it's a, it's, it's, I'm, a, 
I love being a dad for a number of reasons, but my favorite thing to do with my kids over the last 14 years, my oldest daughter's 14 now, she's like almost as tall as me and it's just super creepy to me how old she's getting. But from the time she was nine months old, which basically meant she wasn't incredibly breakable anymore, you know, like those little babies in that picture. From the time she was nine months old until she was about 12 when it got weird, um, I would wrestle with her and her siblings nonstop. So when we got home, we'd, we have a room in our house that we never put stuff in except for like couches against the wall because that is our wrestling room. That's my love language, that's how we bond, it's how we connect, my kids like it, and so I'll pick them up and I'll slam them and I'll hit, hit we'll just, and it is, it's, it's kind of scary. My wife doesn't watch because she just freaks out the whole time. And, and so again, I have a, a six-year-old son, a 10-year-old son, a 12-year-old daughter, and a 14-year-old daughter, and that is what we do to connect. That is how we bond. My six-year-old son is, is the one who still does it the most. The 10-year-old's kind of like a, he's more of a lover than a fighter, you know, and the, the 12-year-old, she's kind of growing out of it like her sister, but me and the six-year-old, we still do it a lot. And the other day, we were on our way home from school, and, uh, and I remember he reaches over, and we were like being real feisty with each other that day, and he kind of grabbed my cheek, and he looked at me, and he said, you listen to me. And he said it like this, he goes, when we get home, you will lay down on the ground. <laughs> Which I'm like, that's a weird way of saying we're going to wrestle. But basically he said, when we get home, we're going to wrestle. It's going to be on. And I was like, my pleasure. And so we got home and we wrestled and I did the steamroller and it was fantastic. And all three of the four did it. You know, the older one's like, yeah, they're dumb. I'm like, whatever. But here's the deal. I share this story to say that wrestling with my kids is my favorite pastime as a parent. I love it. I think it's fantastic and it's awesome, but I'm dreading and I'm, 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 I'm not dreading, I'm, I'm bummed, but I'm also expecting the time to come when my kids will be too old for me to wrestle with, A, because it'll be awkward and B, because they'll hurt me. Uh, it's, gonna, it's gonna happen before I know it. So, so here's the thing that my wife and I always talk about is that when that day comes, it'll kind of be a natural migration where, where the wrestling goes from the living room floor to the kitchen table. And around that table is where we'll begin to wrestle, not, you know, physically, but we'll wrestle with some of the difficult questions that no doubt they're going to have by that time. My daughter said something there. She goes, this is my fortune. She goes, so dad, um, was Adam a caveman? I'm like, darn it. That's a really good question. Let's Google that thing. Let's go ogle that thing and see what it says, right? And it, it, that's just one of many things that we, like, I expect a lot of those. Dad, um, my friend is, is, you know, is saying this. What do I do with that? Don't ever doubt, never, unacceptable, no? So, so that's not what's gonna happen. What's gonna happen is, hey, let's talk. Let's wrestle with this. And again, as a family, that is my goal, that is my hope, because if we don't do that there, where do they do it? And so I ask the same question about us as a church. If we as a church are not willing to let people wrestle here, let people bring their concerns and questions here. If we're a church that's going to be like, oh, we, none of us doubt. If you doubt, you know, keep that to yourself because we are a church of great faith. Ugh. I will tell you this. I've, I've worked at a number of churches. I've, I've been a part of a lot of churches. And the one thing that I love the most, well, one of the things I love the most about Rancho is that this truly is a place, not just on Sundays what we preach, and not just in small groups what we try and practice, but even in the back rooms of staff meetings, it is a place where people are allowed to wrestle through things. They're encouraged to, to wrestle through just different things about who God is and who we are in relation to him and how that all looks in our daily lives. It is a place where wrestling is encouraged. And so I cannot tell you enough, if you are someone who has those questions, has those concerns, has those doubts, do not feel the need to suppress them and hide them because that will get you nowhere. It'll get you going the other direction. 
Bring those to people that care about you. Bring those to people that, that are maybe further along in their walk that want to help you through it. And if you're one of those people that are further along and you've kind of dealt with a lot of your doubts, don't make the mistake that I've seen in a lot of Christians, which is that you get there and then you forget about how you were once here and you start to judge the people that are where you once were. When really, if people did that to you, you wouldn't be where you are. If you're not confused by what I just said, then you have a very fast, active mind. Let me... Um, let me just close with this one thing. Um, the idea of resurrecting in this series, for me, the reason that I, I wanted to teach on this when it comes to resurrecting is because the resurrection, you know, in Murrieta we talked about on Easter, we said, sadly, we make the resurrection about nothing more than just, hey, because he rose from the dead, the cross is, is validated and it means something, and so now when we die, we don't have to go to hell. Yay, and that's what we make the good news into. But when I look at the resurrection, there is so much more that, that is a result of that resurrection. And Scott's talked to you about like how failure isn't what it used to be and about how there's this new life that we can live. But for me, a huge part of the resurrection and it affecting my life is the assurity, assurity, assurance, assuranceness that it has given me when it comes to my doubts. Because as I wrestled through that season of my life, it was the resurrection more than anything else that gave me such hope that the foundation my life was built on was in fact the right one. It was in fact something that, that was solid that I could trust in because here's this historical figure, Jesus, who has so much evidence pointing to his resurrection, you can't ignore it. And it was this huge, huge encouragement to me. And again, I know that there's a lot of people that have searched like I have, and, and it's the same thing is true. But when you look at the resurrection, it's great for that reason, but it also is fantastic because when you look at the resurrection, it has to tie in with the cross. The, the resurrection is, is, is needed because he died on the cross. And when you look at the two of them together, you see a picture of a God who is, first of all, loving, sacrificial, and filled with grace and mercy. But he's also a God who is sovereign and powerful. And he's also a God who you can look at this and see, he's a God who is willing to step down into the muck and the mire, who is down to, willing to step down into the suffering that so oftentimes causes us to doubt, like it did with John the Baptist. And it's an encouragement, not just that, hey, he conquered death and, and, and he rose from the dead and now we have assurance in our faith, but it's also a, a, a incredibly assuring when it comes to who God is, how much he loves us, and how much his gospel of just grace and mercy and truth can be counted on because we worship a risen Savior who loved us enough to die on the cross and was powerful enough to raise three days later. My encouragement to you is wherever you are on your journey, let's stop stigmatizing doubt. Let's stop making it into the monster that we have to hide in the back of the corner. Let's be honest and real about it. Bring it to the people in your life that can help you use it to, to further your relationship with God as opposed to bearing it down and letting it be something that you drag around like an anchor. Amen? All right, I'm gonna pray and then we will wrap up with some music. Let me uh, close. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the journey you have taken me on in my walk. And I thank you, Lord, that I am well aware that I am still mid-journey. God, I thank you for how you've used these things like doubt and these difficult questions that I've had, these things that I, that I once thought were, were potentially going to be the downfall of my faith, you used them to be the foundation of my faith because you, you, you put me in a situation where I was taught and reminded by my parents that it's okay to have difficult questions. It's okay to wrestle with doubt. You, you God, have shown me time and time again that you have nothing to hide. You're not a God who's afraid of me finding the truth 
behind this facade you put up, like the Wizard of Oz, you're a God who welcomes my digging, who welcomes my searching. Father, I pray that you would help all of us to embrace that reality. I pray that you would help each and every one of us to, 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 to look into our hearts and see if there's things that we, we, we've always just kind of hidden and suppressed because we felt like, I can't ask that. I can't wrestle with that. And Lord, I pray that you would put people in relationships, help people have the boldness in those relationships to just openly wrestle with things, ask the tough questions. And God, I pray that this church would continue to be a place of grace and compassion so that when people ask those questions and when people share those, those doubts, that they're not looked down upon or frowned upon or stigmatized, but they're, they're welcomed, they're loved, and they're walked alongside of by people that care about them. Father, we thank you for everything you've done for us. Every good and perfect gift comes from you like your word says, but the greatest gift you've given us is the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for his life, his death, and his resurrection. And what that means to our life, God, we are eternally grateful for it. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.